Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining with us for this week's podcast. As per usual, before we begin our time together, I just want to take a moment to highlight a couple of things. In today's episode, we welcome Dr. Gordon Smith as our speaker. He is the president of Ambrose University, and we as a church are thankful for our friendship with Dr. Smith and with our denominational school. And if you've been with us for a while, you'll know Dr. Smith speaks at Southview about once per year and has often led our annual Lent seminar. And so just over a month from now, we'll be hosting that Lent seminar, and Lent begins with Ash Wednesday, And this year's seminar is on March 18th and 19th. Dr. Smith will be teaching this year's seminar and is presenting on the journey through the season of Lent with the Holy Spirit. And we know from past years that this will be a rich time, and we encourage you to register online through our website or on Realm. And really the best way to know what's going on at Southview is by checking out our weekly viewpoint. You can find a link to that viewpoint in the episode description of this podcast. If you're new with us here in this digital space, we'd love to hear from you. You can find an online connection card at the bottom of the viewpoint, along with a prayer request form so that we can support and join you in prayer. And additionally, you can find us on Instagram and Facebook. But now today, no matter how you're joining with us, may our hearts be open and expectant because God is here. And Jesus invites you to bring all you are and all you are currently carrying to him. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, let's seek the face of God together. Greetings, sisters and brothers, the good folks of Southview Alliance Church. Good to be with you, deeply honored for the opportunity that has been mine in the past and is mine again now to bring the ministry of the word for you as a worshiping and teaching and learning and I trust missional community. The question I'm asking on this occasion is, what on earth is the Spirit up to? What on earth is the Spirit doing? I'm asking this question largely because of a conviction that we share that the work that we do individually and corporately as a community, that the task, the way in which we witness to the reign of God in word and deed in the church and in the world, that ideally It's aligned with what the Spirit of God is doing. And one of the things that intrigues me, as I'm sure it does many, if not most of you, is that we can ask this question for this time and in this place and realize that we live in a fluid environment and that indeed the Spirit brings new challenges, new opportunities, new frontiers, such that we need to ask the question, what on earth is the Spirit doing so that we in turn as individuals and together can then ask the follow-up question, where then and in what ways Are we being called to participate in what the Spirit of God is doing in our time, in our world, in our place? In anticipation of these reflections, I invite you to join me in a reading of Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, which is an exquisite example in the book of Acts of an early church, the church of Antioch, asking this very question and then receiving a response from the Spirit of God. So if you have your Bibles at hand, turn with me, please, to Acts chapter 13, or your smartphone, or it's going to be projected there also on the screen. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 4. Give ear, for this is the reading of God's word. Now in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, a member of the court of Herod, the ruler, 
and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set aside for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they laid hands on them and sent them off. So, being sent on their way by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. Thus far, God's word. Let us pray. God of all grace, grant us, I pray, this grace, that through your word and through the ministry of your Holy Spirit, you would illumine our minds, rekindle our wills, or strengthen our hearts, and rekindle our hearts, illumine our minds, rekindle our hearts, and strengthen our wills. Grant us this grace, we pray, for we ask it in the name of the risen and ascended Lord, Jesus the Christ. Amen. Acts chapter 13, verses 1 through 4, is one of those pivot texts within the narrative of the purposes of God, Old Testament and New Testament. So much, you might say, pivots or hinges on what happens in these verses, what is described in these verses, and then the outcome of that. For you see, up until this point, up until the end of chapter 12, it was more or less assumed that when we think about global witness, the work of the church globally, that it pretty much was something that began and originated in Jerusalem, that the epicenter of the church, and thus the epicenter of global mission, was the city of Jerusalem. And anybody who was sent out was commissioned and sent out from Jerusalem, from the elders of the Christian church in Jerusalem. But here we find a new initiative happening. Here in the book of Acts chapter 13, the church in Antioch, they are taking the initiative. And what is interesting is that effective with Acts chapter 13, Antioch becomes the epicenter of global mission. And Paul and Barnabas, referred to here in the text as Saul, but that's the Saul that we know of as Paul. Paul and Barnabas are sent not from Jerusalem, but from Antioch. And after they do their missionary journey, they go back to Jerusalem. They consult with the elders and leaders of the church in Jerusalem, but ultimately they circle back to Antioch. Antioch, by the middle of the book of Acts, has become the new epicenter of global mission. And what makes this radical and significant is that they saw, they foresaw, they were the ones who recognized that God was taking the gospel, the witness to the reign of Christ, to Gentiles, not merely to Jews. So Paul and Barnabas go to Gentiles, to, uh, to Jews, of course, but ultimately they go to Gentiles. And the reason they go back to Jerusalem is to confirm that those who are Gentiles do not need to become Jews in order to become Christians. It is simply and absolutely revolutionary. And we thank God for the church in Antioch. Most of us are not of Jewish descent. Most of us are Gentiles. That both Gentiles and Jews are now welcomed into the kingdom of God. That Gentiles don't need to become Jews to become Christian. But by the end of the book of Acts, the epicenter has shifted again. When you follow the narrative that the Apostle Paul is on, the story that is unfolding in his life, work, and ministry, if you know the book of Acts and you know such passing references elsewhere, for example, in the book of Philippians, you know that Paul has his eyes set even beyond Asia Minor, where they first went from Antioch. He has his eyes set on Rome. He's on his way to Rome. He seems to have a sense, and we, sense it by, we see it by the end of the book of Acts, that Rome is going to become the new epicenter of global mission. And he's going to Rome, anticipating that from Rome, he's going to go on to Spain that Spain is the new frontier, he's going to Rome, and really, essentially, many New Testament scholars observe 
that he writes the letter to the Romans, the epistle to the Romans, the, the, the great theological and practical treatise, he does so to anchor this church as the new and the epicenter of global mission. Paul gets to Rome, as you likely know, and he does not go on to Spain. He dies, he's martyred there in Rome. And yet Rome nevertheless becomes the epicenter of global mission for literally the next millennium. Those of you, for example, of British or English descent, such as myself, we are grateful to Gregory the Great out of Rome, sending the first missionary to the British Isles, sending Augustine of Canterbury, not Augustine of Hippo, the great North African theologian, but Augustine of Canterbury, who was one of the first to take the gospel to the British Isles. That is, Rome became the center of global mission for all the ways in which, through what we now know of as Northern Europe, the gospel went to Northern Europe from Rome. Rome was the epicenter of global mission. But by the 17th and 18th century, the epicenter of global mission shifts yet again. In the 16th, 17th, and well into the 18th century, the epicenter of global mission, Rome is in a sense behind, still plays a role like Jerusalem did with Antioch. But in the 17th and 18th century, the vast majority of missionaries traveling around the world were coming from what we now know of, what we now think, what we think of as the Iberian Peninsula, what we now think of as Spain and Portugal. The vast majority of missionary biographies from that era, the vast majority of missionaries to Latin America, to Asia, to Africa, were coming from the Iberian Peninsula, most notably Latin America. By the 19th century, the epicenter of global mission shifts yet again. If you've read a missionary biography from the 19th century, more than likely it was somebody of English or Scottish or Welsh descent. That is, the vast majority of missionaries in the 19th century were being sent from the British Isles. And I'm deeply grateful. I celebrate all the ways in which you and I likely know people who are of, perhaps of Asian descent. And they recognized that it was British missionaries who first took the gospel to different parts of Asia. And that now the vibrant church that exists there that's going to have, I'm going to come back to this, has a role now globally, looks back indebted to the, the, the launch of missions in the 19th century. David Livingston, Hudson Taylor, I could keep going. Those were 19th century British missionaries. When we come to the 20th century, yet another shift happens. Now we're getting closer to home. The Christian and Missionary Alliance, the denomination with which this church is affiliated, was established in the 1860s and 70s and 80s, all in anticipation, starting here in North America. And what you'll find is that as you move into the 20th century, the epicenter of global mission shifts yet again. And in the 20th century, the vast majority of missionaries giving witness to the gospel around the world they were coming from the United States and Canada. That is, North America became the epicenter of global mission. And my parents were part of that movement. My father from Beulah Alliance Church, my mother from Belleville, Ontario, Quinty, what is now Quinty Alliance Church, formerly the Alliance Tabernacle. They went as missionaries to Ecuador. That's where I grew up. They were part of that movement of the epicenter of global mission shifting from North America so that the vast majority, if you read missionary biographies in the 20th century, more than likely, they're coming from the United States and Canada. But when my wife and I went with the Christian and Missionary Alliance to the Philippines in the 1980s, we sensed then, and it's even more the case now, 
that the epicenter of global mission has shifted yet again. And now we need to be asking the question, well then, what has changed? What is changing? How is the Spirit now, if the Spirit was calling the Jerusalem church and then the Antioch church and then the church in Rome and so on, how is the church calling us now to participate in what God is doing globally? Well, obviously, this could potentially be an extended response, but at the very least, allow me to identify three movements that it seems to me represent the broad consensus of what we're observing when we ask the question, what on earth is the Spirit doing? Three significant developments that in some respects touch us all individually and also without doubt affect the way in which we here at Southview Alliance Church participate in what God is doing through our own denomination and indeed through the church globally. Three significant developments. Number one, the epicenter of global mission is shifting yet again. It was actually shifting. When Joella, my wife, and I were in the Philippines, we knew that the Philippine church was becoming a growing, emerging leader on the global stage. They were not merely the recipients of missionaries. They were now players on the global stage. And now, when you ask, where are the vast majority of those who are serving internationally as religious workers or ministry, uh, ministry people, the vast majority of them are coming from China, Korea, India, and what is typically referred to as the Southern Cone, Brazil, Chile, Argentina. That is, these nations now, these churches in these nations are taking the lead in global witness. And this significant development all has implications for how we think about what role we have to play on the global scene. Two things by way of illustration. I served, before I came to Ambrose University as the president, I served with an agency that was part of the relaunch of a theological seminary in Hanoi, Vietnam. A, Christian, a, a seminary affiliated with the Christian Missionary Alliance what is referred to in Vietnam as the Tin Lan Church. And I remember this dialogue with this young couple on the street corner. I was walking down the street from the theological college that was going to be launched that fall. They were expecting 30 students, and then 30 more the year after that, and 30 more after that, so that they would have a total of 90. This young couple said that they had come to Vietnam to do pioneer evangelism. I was, I was touched. I was encouraged. You know, okay, do you speak Vietnamese? No. Do you have a visa, a religious visa? No. Um, you know, I just, I, I, I was kind of, I didn't know how to proceed with the con conversation. Because as they pointed out, there is a kind of a consensus that there are at least 15 unreached people groups in the highlands of Vietnam. And they felt a sense of call to these highland people. And I appreciated their sense of call, their desire. And yet I had just walked from a theological college where here was an emerging generation of Vietnamese leaders who speak Vietnamese, who can ride, go under the radar screen, don't need a visa to get into the country, and we're going to be equipping them to do the very same thing that this couple is hardly equipped to do, at least not yet. Could it be that they were called to go to the highland people of Vietnam? Very possibly, of course. I look tenderly upon them. But more than likely, the role that a church like ours, the Canadian church, for example, has is to equip and empower the emerging generation of leaders in Vietnam to do the very thing that a generation ago or a century ago we were doing. Now we play a different role in supporting the work of the Church of Vietnam. And thus, a number of years ago, to hear Michelle and Murray Dirksen, who at that time were our regional directors in Latin America, I was moved as they described a meeting that they had had with the leaders of the Church of the Christian and Missionary Alliance in Chile who were talking about their sense of call 
to Venezuela, suggesting that they were uniquely positioned to be of service to, witness to the kingdom of God in Venezuela. Probably better positioned than we are as the Canadian church. And thus, that our role is to support, encourage, equip, come alongside in every which way we can to support the Chilean church. That is, I'm giving two examples of the ways in which with the paradigm shifting to the global south, China, Vietnam, Korea, India, Latin America, especially the Southern Cone, we need to be stepping back and asking, so what is our role on the global stage if the epicenter of global mission has shifted in such a way? Another very significant development, it seems to me, terribly exciting, is the emergence of what you might call a partnership, an emerging partnership that characterizes now the nature and character of the global witness of the church, both locally and globally. There's no doubt, when I was a young man, the assumption was, if you were going to be involved in international ministry, the assumption was you would get a theological degree, ideally a theological seminary degree, and that would equip and empower you. We had to have two years of seminary if we were going to go with the Christian Missionary Alliance to the Philippines. So both my wife and I got the requisite graduate degree, and off we went to the Philippines. That was what was expected. But what's emerging now is the observation, the recognition that people called into business, education, and the arts are not just kind of supporting the work of global mission. They're actually full kingdom partners. They're actually walking alongside. They're witnessing together. Not so much as it tended to be way back when, that they make the money to support those of us that are doing the real work. No. Now, the work of business, the work of education, the work in the arts, media, and so on, it becomes an active part of what God is doing in the world. And indeed, when I was in Vietnam, I found great joy in the evenings. We, during the day, we were having these consultations about the launch of the seminary. In the evening, I met with young people, both expats and local Vietnamese, who were involved in business. Business leaders who weren't viewing business as just a platform to do religious work, but actually were witnessing to the kingdom of God through business. Those called into education who were teaching in the universities of Vietnam, expats as well as Vietnamese Christians. And then those involved in media and the arts another evening. And I came away just deeply moved by the way in which God was raising up those who in the past may have thought of their work as secular. Why we would use that language, I don't know. But whom we now recognize are full partners in what God is doing in the world. Which is why the move of Ambrose University, which in the past was a Bible college and theological seminary. It still is. We still have a graduate theological seminary. In fact, we have a record number of applicants for this fall. We have a school of ministry with excellent minors in children's ministry, worship arts, youth ministry. But down the hall is the business program. Down the hall is the education program that places our graduates both locally and globally in public schools and in private schools globally. Down the hall is the music, theater, and dance program. Down the hall is the biology program that is equipping people to go on in medicine and kinesiology and occupational therapy. Down the hall is the behavioral science program that is equipping people to go into social work and other similar lines of engagement. That is, every last person in that building is being called by God, but there's a diversity of callings. And now, on the global stage, they are partners. They are co-participants in the kingdom purposes of God, both locally and globally. And maybe you're thinking as you watch and listen, Gordon, it's okay. Calm down. Don't need to be too worried. You can't hear me. I'm saying amen. So you've got a sympathetic audience, except it seems to me we're still trying to learn this. 
it seems to me we still don't fully get it, which is why I'm very encouraged that the National Office of the Christian and Missionary Alliance is appointing senior leadership who come from a business background and inviting us to participate in what is called Scatter Global, which is an opportunity for our business graduates to participate, not so much locally, which they can obviously, but to participate in the global purposes of God where the traditional missionary is not allowed to go. And they go not as pseudo-missionaries or pseudo-business persons, they go fully equipped to launch or to work in a business in that country where God would take them. This is a terrific time to be alive, and my passing references to Ambrose are to say that's exactly the mission of this university, to equip the whole spectrum of the ways in which God is at work now, how the Spirit is calling people now, some called into business, some called into education, some called into arts, to the, art, uh, the fine arts, and some, of course, called into pastoral work and international service in the planting of churches. And then thirdly, what is not to be missed now is that it maybe was the case a generation or two ago that when we thought about global witness, we tended to think of Canada as kind of a Christian nation, and now we're going to take the Christian faith to the regions beyond we must go, as we used to sing. The fact of the matter, though, is now the nations have come to us. That is, that the texture, the character of the, of the demographic that represents Canadian society has changed, has fu is fundamentally altered. When I was an undergraduate, if you had asked me back in the 70s at the University of Regina, where is there a mosque in Canada? I would, I would not have actually known the answer to that question. I would have assumed there's a mosque in Canada, but I would not have known where it is. But now, if you take the light rail transit from downtown Calgary, if you take the Calgary transit system out to our campus at Ambrose University, the last building you see before you go underground to our stop is a mosque. Every last one of our students knows where there's a mosque. They know also that there's a substantial Muslim community here in the city of Calgary. They know that there are Muslims who are their neighbors and Sikhs and Hindus and Buddhists. The nations have come to Canada. If you go to Richmond, British Columbia and drive down Number 5 Road, sometimes referred to as Religion Road or Highway to Heaven, it really is quite an amazing street. A Hindu temple, a Sikh temple, a Buddhist temple, a Muslim mosque, a Jewish community center, and a number of Christian churches. And I drive down that street and I think, ha-ha, this is the future of Canada. I have spoken on this topic before, and I remember vividly asking the question of a congregation affiliated with the Christian and Missionary Alliance, is this a problem or is this an opportunity? And I need to make a confession. It hit me that the congregation I was speaking to thought of that as a problem. They did not say amen and hallelujah. And I thought, oh, can we shift? Can we lift up our eyes? Can we recognize that there was a generation of people here in Canada that were equipping and sending missionaries to Muslim nations, but now those nations have come to Canada. They're not just down the street. They're working with us. They're colleagues. They're employees within the firm where you teach. If you're teaching in a public school, the next classroom over is somebody of, of Islamic faith. That is now all of us. When I was a seminary student, because my wife and I anticipated international ministry, I had to take a course on world religions because presumably I was going to encounter them. Now we all encounter them. This massive change 
alters the way in which we think about the changing character of global mission. And what I want to say is that we then take deep delight. We see it as providential, a work of the Spirit, that Canada is one of the most immigrant-friendly countries in the world. And we see it as a responsibility, a stewardship we have, an opportunity that is given to each one of us to participate, to learn what it means to be a friend, a witness to, a colleague to, somebody of another faith, that all of us now participate in global mission in this way. No doubt more could be said. No doubt this is not an exhaustive list, without doubt. But come back with me to Acts chapter 13. What I am so impressed with by the church in the book of Acts is two things. One, their attentiveness. They were asking the question, you might say, with open heart, with an eagerness of heart and mind, asking what on earth is the Spirit doing and recognizing that the Spirit was calling them to take the gospel to Asia Minor and ultimately to the Gentile communities and cities of that region of the world. So first, attentiveness, asking the question, what on earth is the Spirit doing? And rather than looking back kind of nostalgically to a previous era, realize now the times they are changing, to quote Bob Dylan, now, in this time and in this place, we need to rethink what global witness and global mission looks like. And then secondly, not only was the church in Antioch attentive, they were courageous. That is, they, 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 they buckled it up, you might say. They did what they needed to do. They got in the boat. They sailed away. Rather than kind of reclusing, recusing themselves into their own safe communities, community in that case, they reached out. They did the new venture. And what I want to do is commend the book of Acts from beginning to end, but then also give thanks for the church in Rome that did what they did, the churches in the Iberian Peninsula, the churches of England, Wales, and Scotland in the 19th century, our forefathers and mothers in the Christian Missionary Alliance and in our country and other denominations as well in the 20th century. And now we together can ask, both those of us involved in ordained religious leadership as well as those involved in business, education, and the arts, let's talk together. What on earth is God doing? And what then does it mean to be the church in this time and in this place? God bless you, each one. God go with you. Amen.